This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. Okay. Four years ago, in this quiet forest, in this cozy cabin, something happened. Something so frightening. Something so deadly. Something so evil. We prayed it would never happen again. Now, from the theater of Evil Dead, comes Evil Dead 2. Dead by Dawn. Students, we have heard your voicemails, we have read your emails, we have seen your texts, and today I am proud to say that we are finally getting around to one of the most beloved horror films of all time. That's right, no more chasing us around the deserted cabin. We are back at Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Eric Winnick. And I'm Bradford Lorick, and Scare You is a podcast about horror films, told from several points of view. We call this podcast Scare You because tonight, two of us are going back to school, as it were, to learn something new. And these fellas will be experiencing a groovy horror film they haven't seen yet. Groovy. As assigned by a true horror aficionado. Me. And a brief housekeeping note before we dive in, please check out our website, scareyoupod.com. It's not just the episodes, people. It's got the complete list of superlatives since we started. Who won all the awards? Plus, our final grades. Not to mention our blog with writing from both of your hosts. Joining us today to discuss the 1987 film Evil Dead 2, all the way from Ann Arbor, Michigan, is the one and only... Doug French. Hi, Doug. Good evening, fellas. How you doing? We're doing Good. well. We're great. Very excited to have you. Uh, now, for our listeners, Doug is a writer, podcaster, speaker, and conference organizer who is preparing for artificial intelligence to put him completely out of work. And now that his last child has graduated high school, he feels like Chuck Noland at the end of Castaway. His latest project is... When the Flames Go Up, a podcast community he started with his ex-wife about the unique challenges of late-stage parenting. Uh, his favorite movie used to be Brazil, until it came true, and now it's adaptation. So hey, how the heck are you, old pal, and what are you up to these days? 
I'm feeling good. I mentioned the uh, the whole Chuck Nolan thing, and it does feel like yes. that. It just feels. Mm. I mean, my kids are out of high school, and right. uh, my ex-wife, whom I'm really good friends with, is moving to Natick, Mass, and getting remarried. And right. so there's just a lot of opportunity here to do whatever I kind of want to and wherever I want to. So it's going to be a really rootless kind of time to kind of be here sometimes and be east with my family sometimes and be down in New York, hopefully with you sometimes. And I'm just feeling very creative. Uh, I'm just really putting together my third act. I'm really excited to see how it turns out. Uh, now, Mr. Winnick, I understand that you and Mr. French have quite the um, checkered history together when it comes to film criticism. Would you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about that? I'd be happy to, um, and I'm sure Doug will fill in some of the details. So Doug and I were roommates in New York for about three years. Uh, we lived in the Gramercy area. Doug and I both loved movies. Uh, we used to, we we shared a love of of um, music and similar artists. And um, one day we decided to take advantage of this nascent technology uh, called instant messaging to review films. We would literally uh, sit in our living rooms and type back and forth. And at the end of it, uh, one of us would gather all the text and edit it and put it on a website and the website was called Filmington and we ran that for about three years and so Doug in a way is really sort of the my first sort of film criticism partner it is a pleasure to be speaking with him on Scare You I feel like um, we've come sort of full circle it is kind of a set of bookends for me because you remember how I found it really hard to go on right when my first child arrived. We'd go to right. movies together and I'd fall asleep <laughs> yes. because I wasn't sleeping well. And now that um, now that my kids have grown and it's great to be back talking about movies and feeling having the energy to enjoy movies again, uh, but I still fall asleep in them because now I'm just an old man. Right. Right, me too. What was what was our rating scale, Doug? We used to rate them on a scale of zero to ten dollars. And why was that? Uh, well, I think at the time that was about what a movie cost. Yes, and I think so you're we right. Were kind of gauging it against like was it worth the money we spent to get in? Uh, and, <laughs> yes, um, and it was a, it was a it was about ten bucks was a nice round number to work with, and and we could rank them easily that way because then you know the system was we had a column in the on the side there that listed them all in terms of. That's you right. Could list them alphabetically. You could list them by by year, by I rating, li- right? And by year, yeah. We basically yeah. hand coded everything. You know, it, it wasn't like we had a sortable table like we have now. It was all no. just me alphabetizing stuff into the wee exactly. hours because I was a dork HTML coder. I was about to say, like, what was the platform that that website was on? Because we did this from like ninety nine to two thousand three. Oh, yeah. Well, it predates the plug-and-play stuff. It predates all the WYSIWYG blogger and... Um, Squarespace you know, and Wix. And all that stuff. Yeah, it was hand-coded. I went in there and used HTML and hand-coded everything. Doug, my favorite time of the year used to be the end of the year because we used to give out awards. Do you want to tell our audience, what were those awards called? It was the best name for an award for a movie in the history oh, of movie awards. It really was. Yeah, because it was the silver screen and our favorite awards, the most prestigious awards were the Palm Doors. And so we called them the Screen Doors. To this day, that is such a clever name. I just that I love it. And I brutally brilliant. That is I incredible. Love it. <laughs> 
I which know. is uh, interesting because that's what I have on my business cards. Brutally brilliant. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I met. You know, I really Winnick. shouldn't do this with a mouthful of marbles like I normally do. I really should it's spit true. them out. Why are you doing that? Listen, Doug, it worked for Demosthenes. I think you can pull it off. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yes, it was a moment of brilliance that I will always treasure. We used to get together and create our top lists at the end of the year and call on the screen doors, and I really loved doing it. I can't say I was proud of all my choices, but I stand by my decisions that were made with the data I had at the time, and uh, I just love the whole process. I love the announcement. I love the anticipation of the announcement. I love the arguments that it that they uh, conjured. It was just a fun time of year. It was. But you, you do remain very proud of the name of the award. Oh, unfailingly, because it's brutally brilliant. I met Eric while you guys were in the thick of Filmington. I mean, it was toward the end of Filmington, but I remember reading those reviews, loving the idea, the organizing principle of it. Uh, and I feel like Scare You is is the beneficiary of so much that oh. you guys kind of figured out during the Filmington days. Thank you. And uh, yeah, no, it was great. Well, the best part was it was essentially a transcript of our discussions about it. And yeah. rather than have to you know record a conversation and then record a transcript, we basically just IM'd each other and the text was right there. So all I had exactly. to do was cut and paste the text from, from IM and then put it into uh, HTML and then it became a thing. And and you can actually go back and, and you can still bring some of it up on uh, thanks to the Internet Archive, where I can remind myself that I gave Attack of the Clones 925 um, <laughs> as a review, <laughs> to, which is the most embarrassing thing ever, given that it is the worst Star Wars film. I don't know what I was thinking at the time. Well, I mean, again, I think we need to forgive ourselves for previous transgressions. Yes. Our hearts were always in the right place. That's <laughs> true. I mean, I had a real problem with flirting with disaster, and I still can't understand how. Why well, I gave it my screen door. Movie. Yeah, I know, and it deserved a screen door, and I didn't agree with you, and I was tragically incorrect. I have to ask a question of Doug, and that question is, Doug, the first thing we like to ask our guests is what is your history with the horror genre and what is your favorite horror film? That's a good question. I think um, I don't really seek out horror films as a thing to watch. Uh, you know, I don't anticipate when new ones come out. I never was like sitting around waiting for Saw 36 to come out. Um, <laughs> but I do have a lot of favorite horror films. I remember the genre that really gets me are when bodily transformations always scared the hell out of me. And the most scared I remember ever being was that iconic two-minute scene in American Werewolf in London. Oh, when yeah. Rick Baker just gave me nightmares for years. Body horror. Um, and before that all the wolfman stuff scared me uh, and before that the creature from the black lagoon scared me although that was just a weird fish man <laughs> but um yeah the kind of like sloppy uh let's just get some blood in there and a bunch of weird grotesque creatures that look like the ends of tapeworms that wasn't the kind of thing i sought out i mean i loved carrie uh i love blair witch project um i love the thing i love and i did enjoy the way you're you're i did enjoy how you analyzed the thing a few months back i loved uh oh the fly oh uh, brundlefly freaks me the hell out every oh, goddamn yeah. time and even then i mean now it's 
interesting, you know, when you contemplate your mortality and you think about the capability of your body to fail you or your body to transform into something you can't control, that's a scary thing to me. Now, when, you, when you're looking down the barrel at 60 and you're thinking, you know, this is going to happen, your body is going to betray you eventually, but maybe I had the spirit of an older person in my 20s because even then, the idea of even watching Lou Ferrigno freak me out a little bit. I <laughs> actually I think what was underrated was antlers. All right. I kind of freak again because of the transformation part of it. Sure. Uh, and it's based on something that is actually worried about in real life, the the Wendigo, yes. you know, and anything that's based on ancient folklore and stuff. That that took me back to when, you know, Eric and I used to watch the X-Files all the time. And I got to say, watching this movie called me back to that. Because what did we say every time we were watching the X-Files together? Turn the goddamn lights on! Turn the lights on. (laughs) Wow. And it's like, here he is in the shed. It's like, you know, Ash, turn the lights on, would you please? Thank you, Kay Kaiser. Uh, Mr. Winnick, will you give us one of your patented, brief, spoiler-free synopses, please? I would. Uh, Joe, please cue the music. The movie begins with a couple, Ash and Linda, driving to what they believe will be a romantic getaway at a cabin in the woods that Ash claims is deserted. The cabin, we discover, once belonged to an archaeologist, Dr. Raymond Noby, and his wife, Henrietta, who, while on an archaeological mission of some kind, discovered a book, the Necronomicon Ex Mortis, the Book of the Dead. Upon arrival, Ash finds a reel-to-reel recording of Dr. Noby discussing his mission and reciting lines from the Necronomicon. Harmless stuff, you'd think. Harmless, that is, until Linda and Ash's world starts coming alive, with evil spirits pouring out of every crack, crevice, and ditch. When Dr. Noby's daughter Annie arrives, along with her lover, a pair of locals, and new pages from the Necronomicon, all are in for a rude awakening. Evil spirits gonna evil. Fortunately, Ash is there and proves mighty handy with a chainsaw and a sawed-off shotgun. No, oh, I see what you did there, sir. I see what you did there. All right, so uh, why don't we tell everyone who was responsible for the making of this film? Yes, uh, this film was directed by one Sam Raimi. Who? A direct- right, a director we have already covered this season in our episode on Drag Me to Hell. Uh, Raimi, as most of you know, is responsible for three Evil Dead films, including this one, the original, and Army of Darkness. Uh, he also can be held responsible for such fare as Spider-Man's 1, 2, and 3, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, Oz the Great and Powerful, A Simple Plan, For the Love of the Game, The Gift, and of course, Darkman. 
Now, the writers of this nasty piece of work are Raimi and Scott Spiegel, and the film stars Raimi regular Bruce Campbell giving what is likely his apex performance as Ash, along with Sarah Barry as Annie, Dan Hicks as Jake, Cassie Wesley as Bobby Joe, Denise Bixler as the unfortunate Linda, Richard Domeyer as Ed, and of course, Sam's brother Ted Raimi as a hideous cellar-dwelling ghoul. Not to be confused with the hideous cellar-dwelling Boston Red Sox. Now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. Uh, According to Scare You Hollywood Bureau Chief IMDB, back from administrative leave after harassing the night staff at Variety, uh, Evil Dead 2 was released on March 13th, 1987, sporting a very lean budget of $3.6 million. Happily, the film broke even, raking in a worldwide haul of $5.9 million. Our guy Roger Ebert gave Evil Dead 2 three out of four stars, stating, quote, I'm not suggesting that Evil Dead 2 is fun merely because you can spot the references to other movies. It is because, A, the violence and gore are carried to such an extreme that they stop being disgusting and become surrealistic. B, the movie's timing aims for comedy, not shocks. And C, the grubby, low-budget intensity of the film gives it a lovable quality that high-tech movies wouldn't have. The New York Times' Karen James, in a review published March 13, 1987, opined, Evil Dead 2 is genuine, if bizarre, proof of Sam Raimi's talent and developing skill. But it is definitely not for the squeamish. Its ideal audience would be full of Three Stooges fans with streaks of grotesque humor. And Michael Blauen, critic from my one-time hometown newspaper, The Boston Globe, said the following, quote, By the time Evil Dead 2 spins and swirls its way to its conclusion, director Sam Raimi has trotted out virtually every technical effect he could think of. Evil Dead 2 looks more like a studio audition film than a real feature. I hope someone gives him a chance to make a better movie someday. And oddly enough, he did. And now's our opportunity to ask the professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is me. But before we get started, I just want to confirm, Doug, like me, you had, in fact, not seen this film before. That's correct, yes. Okay, great. So, Professor, please inform us and our listening audience why you chose this film for the Scare You curriculum. And for those of us who have not seen Evil Dead 1, can you let us know in a spoiler-free fashion, is this film a sequel or a remake? I don't know if I can answer that second question in a spoiler-free fashion, but I can say that the um, the term that is most often applied to The Evil Dead 2 is a requel. It is neither a remake nor a sequel, strictly speaking. It is 
it is a little bit of both. And the reason that I chose this film is that this movie is like, let's say you're out in the country and you see, you see a beautiful pool and it's a hot day. And you, you walk up to that pool and you think you're just going to take one little step down into the water just to, just to wiggle your toesies around for a minute. But it isn't, there, there's no gentle slope. There's no single step. And all of a sudden you're in 40 feet of unrelenting freezing water and you don't have a clue how to swim. But it's still a pool. And it's still a really hot day. So it's also simultaneously the best thing you've ever experienced. And that is basically the Evil Dead 2. So this is absolutely 100% required viewing material for genre fans. Um, it is a modern classic of horror. And uh, Sam Raimi, with The Evil Dead created an entire subgenre, the cabin in the woods subgenre. And I think unlike a lot of other films that we've essayed here in the hallowed halls of Old Scare You, this one is almost purely visceral. There isn't a super rich and rigorously intellectual structure or approach like there is with a lot of the other films that I've uh, curated for the syllabus. Uh, it, it is a roller coaster. It is just a, a scare a minute thrill ride that leaves you breathless, but you just want to, you just want to stay on the roller coaster every time it goes around. Uh, there's something happening nearly all the time in every centimeter of the frame to such an extent that you wonder how on its conservative budget, what you're seeing has been achieved. And I think that sort of freewheeling spirit of fun doesn't mean that it it doesn't hold together or have a terrific integrity to its storytelling or, or that it doesn't have um, internal logic and rules by which it operates. Uh, but you can and do appreciate it on a nearly purely visceral gut level. I would say from the get-go, from the cold open, prior to the start of the credits, we are, as an audience, being exposed to filmmaking choices that will come to be known as hallmarks of Raimi's work. Um, Dutch angles and a, a style of movement, a, a, a sort of editorial technique that you will see again and again and again. Things. I hope, Eric, that we will talk about tonight that, that have their origins in the 80s are things that extend to films like Drag Me to Hell, which were made in the 2000s. Uh, and, and, you know, less than five minutes into the runtime of this movie, the magic words have been spoken, the narrative has been kicked off and is already moving at a clip, and it's... It's so great. It's so cool. It's so much fun to see what Raimi does within the frame as he's telling this story. And it's, I think, as as Ebert says, it's, it's theatrical, it's cartoony, it's delightful across the board. And by the time we're six minutes in, 
Ash has decapitated his girlfriend with a shovel because she is possessed by a Kendarian demon. So is it a sequel? Is it a remake? Does it matter? Do we care? Uh, I, because I think what it does, what, what it has is loving craft, loving attention to detail, and careful service to fans that Raimi didn't even know he had at this point. Ash is, is to- asked by the demon early on to join us. He has no interest in that, but he also can't escape. And we, we as an audience, we're, we are Ash. We are witnessing and, and we are participating in the demonic hijinks as this movie goes along. And it's so proscribed, it's so small in scale and so theatrical in its presentation that Raimi and his team are in nearly total control of every element of filmmaking. And this is like half screwball comedy, half grisly horror, but it is nearly without exception, all innovative, nearly independent filmmaking. The writing is clever, but the story is gossamer. Uh, The story is employed, or uh, maybe better, deployed, to create just enough linkage between moments to, to string together the objectively incredible and entertaining set pieces that that compose almost all of our viewing experience. But there is enough thought given to the backstory that it, it sort of contributes to our, um, what, consumer satisfaction, and it lays the groundwork for the multiple successive sequels and offshoots of what has become a franchise. And for a young filmmaker, for a group of young filmmakers, it is consistently innovative and totally exhilarating. And, you know, before I was talking about Dutch angles, I mean, I think that when you think about it, the fluidity of the camera work, even when um, the intended effect may not always be fluidity, um, there are clever and and highly motivated cuts and transitions. Um, I think, with the exception of uh, our meeting the Nobies and Jake and Bobby Joe, the entire film plays like a single scene, a, a single experience from start to finish. Um, but Ramey and his team, all of whom have gone on to become sort of powerhouses in their sort of respective departments in Hollywood, they, they made a thing that was totally unique in the marketplace. Um, they created an environment in which anything can and does happen, um, and they did it all in a house in the woods in which all things seem possible. And I think from that house... Uh, from that house in the woods has sprung throngs of imitators of wildly divergent qualities and levels of execution. And that's up to and including things like The Cabin in the Woods, which is also an incredible movie and also a love letter to the Evil Dead universe and could not even have come to be without Raimi and this ragtag crew of like gleeful lunatic geniuses.
Ah, for crying out loud, it's the fire drill. Whatever you do, grab a cleaver, fire up a chainsaw, slam some deadite's head in the cellar door. Should you choose to listen further and you have not seen this film, what is your goddamn problem? That's right. It's time for (laughs) Study Hall. The portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film. Uh, We'll be breaking this section up into two segments, Honor Roll, i.e. what worked, and Detention, i.e. what didn't work. Uh, But before we get into it, I have to ask you both, um, just to establish where we are on the playing field, give me a basic yes or no response. Did you like the film? Doug? You're definitely looking for a binary response here, because I definitely look at it from two particular angles. I mean, for the film itself, the answer is, you know, fine. (laughs) I I sat here listening to all you were saying about that movie, and I have whatever options you have to include my commentary with it, I'll, I'll push back on a few things. But when I think about just the whole ragtag group making this movie in the woods, you know, Bruce and Sam Raimi were childhood friends just around the corner here. They're Royal Oak, Michigan's like half an hour away. And I've spent lots of time in Royal Oak when my kids were in school in Detroit. So it seems very homey to me. And just the whole idea of what they did with what they had, I'll give it a yes. All right. (laughs) Eric? Yes. Okay. So then let's get right into it. Uh, We will do honor roll first, and we will do it round robin style. Uh, We will each name three scenes or aspects or attributes that worked best for us. And then we will hand out the dreaded detention slip. Uh, So, Doug, as our guest, why don't you go first? What's your first nomination for the honor roll? (laughs) You know, my favorite bit that I have to mention first was just the flying eyeball in the mouth. When you talk about the slapstick aspect and the odds of that ever happening in that scenario, uh, it was a, you know, that was, it was a very particular comeuppance for her to, uh, to get a flying demonized eyeball right in the teeth there. So I thought that was, I laughed audibly at that. A mouthful of Igor. The demon's uh, aim was true. Mr. Winnick, would you like to give us a, a, an honor roll nomination, please? Bruce Campbell's performance. Um, to say he's the lead would be to do him a disservice. Uh, he is the movie. He commits 200,000% to this film. I mean, just as Ash endures every indignity known to man, it seems, I assume Campbell did most of his own stunts and put himself through hell. Um, you cannot ask for a better, more game actor than Bruce Campbell. And the one scene that I would call it in particular is the scene in which his hand is possessed by an evil spirit. It's like this totally detached being. And when it starts pulling Ash's body along the floor <laughs> to this meat cleaver, incidentally, Raimi did slip a sly reference to the scene into Dr. Strange, uh, which Campbell Campbell plays a hot dog vendor who has to punch himself in the face for three weeks straight. What do you I, what do you what do you have, Bradford? I am right there with you, Eric. I think that the physical commitment and performance of Mr. Campbell is a true star turn, and and it is one that 
eventually sort of made Campbell a star. Uh, I think moments like the scene where he amputates his hand or the mirror scene, it's like a Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin level of commitment. Um, and, And this would not be the same film if it did not have Bruce Campbell as Ashley Joanna Williams. I actually don't think he became that big a star. I, I I think he actually became known in sort of this universe for sure. And of course, Doug and I reviewed the film Bubba Hotep. Bubba Hotep? Uh, yeah, a peanut butter and banana, banana sandwich. sandwich. Um, big. Yes, big. <laughs> it was, which is directed, I think, by Don Coscarelli. Who yes, did, it was. Uh, phantasm um but uh yeah i don't know i don't know that campbell became that biggest star i certainly should have become a bigger star than he did well you'll note that i did say eventually sort of made campbell a star yes eventually sort of yes exactly well he is instantly recognizable and he does have those matinee good looks which i think place him in that particular protagonist role he fits that like a glove and the chin oh the chin that is a very memorable chin the chin deserves its own congressman it does (laughs) uh and and zip code let's throw it back to doug for his second honor roll nomination you know while we're on the subject of bruce campbell as ash i wanted to give a special shout out to whoever designed his i'm possessed by a demon makeup Yes. When his face is kind of turned into a skull and he has those little Deadpool eyes. And mm-hmm. uh, that was a particularly jarring look for him because he is recognizable within that, but it's clear that something is wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> something, something is a little wrong, yes. You have something on your face there, Bruce. <laughs> but, you know, that that is when, when I talk about that ragtag group of artists who made this film. The makeup department included people like Howard Berger and Robert Kurtzman and Greg Nicotero, Um, you know, KNB effects. These guys have gone on to do some of the biggest effects heavy genre films, you know, in the past couple of decades. Um, And they were sort of cutting their teeth on this project, which is why some of these effects, you know, the, the innovation that, that would grow out of their studio really started with things like the evil dead Two. Yeah. And I was half expecting to see a credit to Ray Harryhausen in there somewhere. Of course, of course. Um, Mr. Winnick, would you like to give us your second honor roll nomination? Yes, this is going to come as no surprise, given that you've referenced it pretty extensively in your your introduction. But uh, the ingenuity of Raimi's use of the camera, um, it's another character here. Uh, The way that it roams around the woods or the cabin or hurdles forward towards Ash or through the cabin, breaking down doors, always accompanied by this sort of loud, portentous music or soundscape, whatever you want to call it, the way the camera tracks things like the eyeballs flying out of Henrietta's (laughs) head, as Doug mentioned, which is directly echoed in Drag Me to Hell, by the way, is pure comic book mayhem. So it's not just a character. It's really showing us where to look and revealing things that the characters aren't seeing, like Bobby Joe in the woods or the trees coming alive at the end or, or Linda's (laughs) body dancing around in the woods. 
All right, so I guess yeah. that's that would be to your second honor roll, sir. To my second honor roll, I guess, uh, because no one has brought it up yet. I'm going to give a very special shout out to the Freddy Krueger glove that can be seen above the door in the workshed. And uh, Mark Shawstrom, who was working in the makeup department on this film, was simultaneously working on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 and apparently borrowed the glove to use as an Easter egg. And that also keys into this sort of wonderful and kind of authentically heartwarming exchange between Wes Craven and Sam Raimi, who would kind of regularly nod to one another through visual cues in their films. Um, in A Nightmare on Elm Street, Nancy falls asleep watching the original Evil Dead. Um, but they went back and forth for years, just including little gestures uh, for each other in, in their films. Yeah, which I think is kind of great. That's so great. I love that. Um, Mr. French, have you got a third uh, nomination to the honor roll? I actually had Freddie's glove as my third. Um, wow. Just right. because I really love, I mean, I read a lot about the backstory, about who knew whom when the movie was coming, uh, was, was being produced. Um, like, for example, um, I watched it uh, on Amazon Prime, which, as you know, offers a lot of commentary and... Yes. Um, behind-the-scenes um, tidbits, factoids that you can look at. Um, and what is this time, called? I guess, Amazon Sam... Prime? Yes. Interesting. It's, Prime it's, Video? It's, it's this right. thing that they have. Oh, I'm going to have to check can, it out. You can rent a movie, and, and it's like it comes right into your living room. It's amazing. Huh. Yeah, watch out for this company. They're a little upstart. They're going to go somewhere, I think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, so I, one scene came up when they were talking about um, – you know he was he's good friends with uh, the Cone Brothers, and so there's a they, lot of they information were there together, about. I think when they made this movie, yeah, with Holly Hunter, yes, who was yes. Uh, a candidate to be cast as Bobby Joe, but the producers didn't think she was sexy enough. <laughs> oh my god! But I think um, I don't know. I can think you, in general, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Because I remember hearing about it. I didn't really go back and look into the backstory of the glove. Do you, do you remember the specific details, Doug? Uh, I'm not sure. I think you had them down there in terms of just how there was definite. Um, there was a lot of energy behind this kind of requel, just because um, Raimi wanted to remake it and retain the rights to it because he didn't have the rights to the first one. So in a way, this is kind of like Evil Dead. Taylor's version, <laughs> you know, he Got just it. wanted to remake it and retain the rights to it. Uh, but at that time, since Stephen King was such a big fan of Evil Dead, one of the main reasons Evil Dead Two was even what made was because he was a big proponent of it. And so it's just kind of fun to see how insular this crew is among the filmmakers and horror enthusiasts, and the fact that Sam Raimi and his brother Ted and a bunch of people were running around the woods, you know, with a camera on their head, you know, pretending to be a uh, a demon that is trying to attack a bunch of humans yet somehow can't catch up to a car. <laughs> <laughs> so true. That was endearing to me in a way, just because the plot was, I mean, the, 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 the demons were very of this world, you know, they were held back by time and space because they couldn't catch up to a car or they could only demonize. They could only possess his hand. I mean, what was the barrier in his wrist? 
that couldn't the demon couldn't possess up his arm to the whole body at once. <laughs> so your interpretation of those events can go either way. It could be this plot is terribly put together. There's holes everywhere. Or it's like, you know what? Maybe we're not meant to understand why this <laughs> demon came billions of light years to uh, to to terrorize this little cabin in the woods, but yet gets tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's a long journey from the intersection of time and space. It absolutely is. And why, you know, why was the Necromicon book only enough to do so much and why were there extra pages somewhere stored separately and why did she only read half of them hey i only read the bad part <laughs> well interestingly just, i loved how I, it was so silly that it it definitely brought me around eventually it's not like they had a bunch of index cards that they threw up like in 21 grams or something, but it was still was interesting the inconsistencies of just how evil and how powerful this demonic force was I was going to ask the question because I, I, I read that the Necronomicon was actually the invention of H.P. Lovecraft. Is that true? It's Bradford? true. It's very true. So it, it has a history that goes he back. He was known for his wizened, eldritch. Yes. This goes back to the 20s, I guess, or 30s? Yes. Do you want to say more about that? No, I mean, it's an it's a, it's a creation from the sort of universe of of lovecraft uh which has been co-opted again and again uh throughout right. um interpretation in perpetuity would you say not in perpetuity per- i would not say in perpetuity i would say in uh, in 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 fact in very limited ways uh that many of which we can point to like the evil dead the spirit of fun and playfulness and inventiveness that just pervades every frame of this film the plot as you put it i I think you use the word gossamer. I think that's that's well put. I, it's really just an excuse. It's thin. It's so thin. Yeah, it's so thin. It's really just an excuse to hang these gags on. You know, the the yeah. book is really kind of a red herring. And although the prophecy in the book turns out to be true in the end, it's it's nothing more than a framing device. It's a vessel uh, for all of the zaniness that Raimi can stuff into an hour and 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 twenty four minutes. And the, th- the funny thing is, Bradford, I didn't care. Um, I'm usually the guy on this podcast, as you know, who's always bemoaning the lack of character development or the creaky plot mechanics. Or what, the, what, what? I know, the, yeah. lack, of, the <laughs> lack of stakes, the, the use of claymation, you know, whatever. I, I mean, remember that so fondly. I mean, here, none of it matters because the film is not about that it's literally just a roller coaster ride of blood maniacal laughter and in-camera effects that probably didn't look too shabby in 1987 what where is eric winnick and what have you done with him (laughs) you're gonna be very surprised it is definitely uh, a departure from the Winnick canon, for it sure. It is. The old grumpy me. Not tonight. I think the, the grumpier we get, though. Eric has been overcome by the Necronomicon ex mortis. You might say. Uh, the body which, snatchers have returned. Which brings us to, uh, I believe, Bradford, your third honor roll. Would you grace us with some uh, some love? I, you know, I, I could talk about a little tiny moment of cinematography that's kind of great that I love but I think I'm just gonna 
I think I'm just going to say a farewell to arms. It's the moment when Ash has just chainsawed off his own possessed hand, as as Doug has underlined. It's obviously a very weak demon because it can't make it past the wrist. Uh, but, but so Ash has just become separated from his hand. Uh, and as he's l- trapped it under a bucket on the floor, he's put a stack of heavy books on top of it to prevent it from moving hither and yon. And uh, the book on the top of the stack is a farewell to arms. And um, whether you groan when you see it or whether you crack up and really appreciate it, it's a clever gesture. And that is sort of that it, it those 30 seconds before and after are, are sort of they, they perfectly encapsulate what the experience of watching this movie is about. Detention, after school, both of you. And you'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? M- motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Okay, so now as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what, if anything, in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. Now, again, Mr. French, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention? Well, you know, I mean... To be taken out of this film, there were so many things that just took me out of this perfectly plausible plotline. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, I just it, it, it insists on itself. It just kept me out of the fourth wall, and I, I always hate when that happens. But uh, when I was watching it on Prime Video on my phone, of all things, because I'm thinking like a millennial after all, uh, it was actually interesting that like nine out of ten comments were about continuity issues. Yes, uh, and so I, I, I don't. At the risk of sounding contradictory, I mean the ragtag plot was fun and interesting, but the two things that stood out to me: one was that there was a scene when when Ash is walking around with his intact right hand after he severed it off when he's back <laughs> down in there looking after Henrietta, and um, and I think they just used a mirrored shot in there because they had to, um, but that that was funny. Uh, and but what really made me laugh was there are times or a couple scenes when a character is absolutely soaked in blood. I mean, absolutely. There's a deluge, a genesis flood of human viscera that douses this person, and then cut to the guy turns around and there's like two streaks of, you know, Cairo syrup on his cheek. <laughs> a, a gentle spatter um, pattern on a yellow Oxford shirt. Yeah, not even that. It, it, yeah, but it was, it, you know, this this person should have been soaked like the end of Carrie for the remainder of the film. And uh, but for whatever reason, when the demon blood, um, it's it's wash away blood. I guess it, you have. To, I mean, there's a courtesy there, I suppose, because who wants to walk around drenched in blood all day? But. Um, yeah, there were a lot of continuity issues that, again, were in keeping with the uh, with the the ragtag crew and the, just a bunch of weirdos in the woods making this weird movie. But it still was uh, <laughs> it was it was funny. 
Mr. Winnick, would you like to give us your first detention slip? I would. And I'm going to surprise you because I only have two for this film. Ooh. I do not have three detention slips. <gasps> Eric! Oh, I know, I know. But, um... The forgiveness know, possession continues. Yes. Uh, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, when we do these these lists is that when you go second or third and somebody has just stated what you were about to say, you're faced with this choice of do I say it or do I instantly come up with something else on the spot? Well, I can't think that quickly. So I'm just going to read what I wrote. And this might seem a little funny to you gentlemen, but the first detention slip I have is when Annie is trying to pull Jake back from being sucked into the cellar. Now, ultimately, she fails. And after Jake's body goes in, there's this absolute torrent of blood that comes out of the cellar, goes everywhere. And it's the second time in this film that this has happened. But unlike the first time, uh, when Ash is covered in the stuff and pretty much remains covered in blood for the rest of the film... Annie walks away and she's got this tiny demure little spot on her yellow button down shirt. (laughs) So yes, it's just a bit of fun. But if we're to believe the blood is real, then as Mr. French so aptly put it, it's a major continuity error. It's a laundry commercial. Right. (laughs) You never get that little spot of blood off your shoulder. Yes, I caught that too. And it it was like, what is going on here? Her knee highs never come down. I mean, she has just been like, she's just been glenned in blood. And by glenned, I mean, talking about Johnny Depp in A Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, it's that volume of effluvia, right? And, um... That that girl is bone dry, except for, I believe I called it, a little spatter on her yellow Oxford. Yeah. It's a very right. strange sartorial choice, but I'm it there is. for it. Are you familiar with the video for the Foo Fighters, The Pretender? No. No. Well, if you Google it, it's just, it's the band performing and they're facing down a line of riot police. And during their performance, there's an entire, there's a large red wall behind them. And uh, that wall eventually bursts forth into this torrent of red viscera that repels the riot police. I actually thought exactly what Bradford said. I I, I thought of the Glenn scene from Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, (laughs) But also, of course, Stanley Kubrick did something very similar in 1980 in The Shining with the elevator. So there's something about torrents of blood but also something about cleaning bills, I guess. Is is that T O R R E N T S of blood or T O R A N C E of yes. blood? Well done. That would be a Jack Torrance of blood. Well done, sir. Well done, the sir. Puns of homonyms. Yes. Bradford Lorick, uh, first detention slip, if you got one. Fun with phonics. Um, I guess um, if you're watching it for the first time, it seems maybe a little bit odd. It seems to maybe strain the old credulity to think that Professor Noby would leave a very valuable archaeological discovery just laying around on the table of an unsecured cabin in the middle of the woods. And it feels a little bit sloppy, but of course it winds up being totally justified 
when we learn that Ash and Linda and company are not the first victims of the Kendarian demon. But, you know, I think it's forgivable. I think there are a handful of small goofs. But I think if you're noticing them, you are a terrible audience member. Not to impugn anyone on this podcast tonight, but I think if you're dwelling on the inconsistencies, you're missing all the magic. So I have, I don't really have any detention slips for this one, but uh, let's toss it back to Mr. French. Yeah, I think my second one is the one way out of town and the bridge that uh, suddenly blocked Ash's way out <laughs> of the woods. Right. Um Again, I, I kind of get what this what it, the plot was supposed to serve, that it trapped him in there with the demons who apparently, why can't they um, fly across the gap and get him on the other side of the bridge? Why do they have to keep him from leaving? But uh, I enjoy the fact that the demons really made a dog's breakfast of the whole bridge, you know, and it's like you had those four shards sticking up, which, again, might be another... Uh, Another Easter egg for Freddy Krueger's razor fingers. Oh yeah, but um, hmm. but that's the one that you know led back to, and now suddenly he has to drive backwards and somehow still propel his shitty car faster than an intergalactic demon can find him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, shall we uh, ask Mister Winnick for his second detention slip? Second and final. Yes. Second and um, final. I got to give a detention slip to Richard Domeyer as Ed Getley. Um, he is like the one actor in this film that didn't get the memo. Um, I, I mean, I, I can only picture Raimi off camera screaming, dial it up to 11, dial it up to 11. And all Domeyer can manage is like a five. You know, he's like a total charisma bypass. And um Frankly, I was, uh, thank you for that. That's yeah, an excellent term. Blast yes, from the past. Yes, it is a blast from our past. Um, and frankly, I, I was glad when he died because I was like, I don't want to watch this guy anymore. And then this is the guy with the members only jacket, right? Yep. Yes. Yeah. So I think his members only jacket functioned as like a red shirt in Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. He was basically expendable. But also he just I mean, you know, he just he's like in a different film. I think he just doesn't really play it up as much as the others do. Bradford Lork, uh, second detention slip. I have no more. There you go. And neither do I. All right, so we're back to Doug French. Let's do it. <laughs> I have one more, and it's also, it's a bit meta, but it's a, it's a shout out uh, to the marketing department who designed that movie poster of like mm. the skull with those soulful, apologetic eyes looking out. <laughs> yes. It's not scary at all. It's basically saying, look, I'm sorry you have to watch this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as marketing people, Bradford and I really appreciate your that that shout out. They're, they're like the unsung heroes in the horror world. Right. If it's done right, they do an excellent job. I think they did a great job with the poster of this film. I think that, that skull is hilarious. Yeah, I have to <laughs> well, agree does, with Eric, you know? But it definitely says, look, don't take this seriously. You know, <laughs> yes. this is just a hot mask I'm wearing. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I I do think of it as kind of an iconic video box, though. You know, in right, um, right. In, in the 80s, walking through the aisles of the video store, the independent VHS rental places, uh, that is, is sort of an indelibly branded one upon my brain. 
but I do think that it 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 sort of confuses expectations. But I don't mind that about it. And again, that's a theme throughout our conversation. I think it's absolutely like, yeah, there's yeah. all sorts of dumb stuff that happens, and you'd have to decide whether you're cutting it slack or not. Exactly. Yeah, because some stuff is terrible, and it pulls you out of the movie, and some stuff is terrible, and it brings you into the movie, and it, you're kind of making these decisions on the fly as you watch. All right, before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. We'll get some air into our lungs, run around a little bit, maybe have a snack or two. Doug, uh, growing up, did you have a favorite school time snack? I had a bunch of eccentric sandwiches that my mom packed for me for lunch. Bring it on. My favorite, yeah, peanut butter and butter on raisin bread. Oh, Lord. Hmm. And I still make it when I... When there's a time when I could really use an emotional lift, that is my Proustian Madeleine. I will make that, yeah. and it just hits the exact spot. I can wow. imagine. What else was there? Yeah, so curious. Um, there was uh, salami and pickle relish. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Yeah, I, I cracked the beer open. <laughs> you can use that if you want. What did um, you crack it open with? <laughs> my my apologies. You cracked um, it open with your apologies, Doug. You're amazing. I know it's all telekinesis and phlegm. <laughs> <laughs> Which was my third weird sandwich. I was just going to say Eric's going to edit this so that your weird school time snack is telekinesis and phlegm. <laughs> No, they were just my favorite opening band. They were touring with Captain and Tennille for a while. (laughs) I'm just going to let you guys keep going. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) So now let's take a break, and we'll come back for the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, speaks very highly of you. He's very popular, Ed. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Thank you, Mr. Gabriel. It's time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserve to die. So to start us off, let's do our first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene. Named for Gaspar Noe, director of such films as Irreversible, which I believe we reviewed for Filmington. Yeah, I wanted to thank you for that. That was a definite callback to one of the most disturbing it films. Was my pleasure. My pleasure. Still... Um, Love yeah. 3D, <laughs> Lux Eterna, Enter oh. the Void, and Climax. So uh, let's do this. Uh, this is the uh, most disturbing scene. I'm going to ask uh, Mr. Lorick to start us off with this one. Probably any scene in which you can see the inside of Dan Hicks's open mouth. Oh, God. Or uh, maybe the encounters with naughty Henrietta when she's wearing progressively less and less clothing. Yeah, I would go with the second one, actually. Yeah, that I think so, too. Far more disturbing. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, all right, Doug, uh, most disturbing scene, the Gaspar Noe Award. What do you have for us? I think it's actually a tribute to Sam Raimi's movie making uh, and um, appreciation for tonal shift. Because for me, the most disturbing thing is uh, Ash deciding he has to cut his own hand mm. off. And how he, you know, yeah, he has to use the chainsaw that he just used to slice what's left of his girlfriend down the middle. But he chose right away to have it skitter off like a chipmunk. So he definitely wanted to bring the humor back into a very ghastly situation. Doug, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, too, chose the hand scene. Uh, if only because, uh, like another film that Bradford and I talked about this season, it's never fun to watch a knife or a pair of scissors go through a hand. Um, and and though that scene is really funny, it's like the one moment where we sit back and go, you know, ooh, that's gotta hurt. <laughs> Which brings us to our next award. That's the Ellen Ripley Award for a character that most deserved to live, named for old Ellen Ripley, the surviving crew member of the, the doomed... Nostromo. No, doomed Nostromo in Alien. Um, so I'll start off with this one. Uh, just really simple. It's got to be Ash all the way. Um, and he does live, albeit in another dimension. Uh, Bradford, what do you got? Linda. Linda? Poor, sweet, pirouetting Linda. She did not bargain for this. That's true. I agree with that. It's definitely Linda. She just wanted to go off with her boyfriend and ended up, you know, oh. having being decapitated by a shovel in the first. Okay, so minute. so Doug, you're 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 giving your Ellen Ripley award to Linda as well. Yeah, she was just in for a joyride with a boyfriend, and wow, did she no, not she get what did she paid not. for? Just a um, weekend away from the University of Michigan, and she's never going back. Did it strike you as odd <laughs> that he was able to decapitate her with a spade shovel? Have you ever tried? No. But I, it just doesn't strike me as that sharp, I guess. Well, maybe I, if you had tried, you would know, Eric. Next time I see you, I'm definitely bringing a, a shovel. All right. So that brings us to the <laughs> Michael Myers Award um, for character that most deserved to die. Doug, would you like to tell our listeners who Michael Myers is? And please don't say he's the guy from Austin Powers. Um, Michael Myers is a somehow unkillable guy who killed his sister when he was six years old and was instantly institutionalized under the care of Dr. <laughs> Loomis. Yes, yes, that's right. Played by Donald Pleasance and his perplexed <laughs> morality. Yes. Uh, were, were you prepared for this question? Because um, this answer is fucking amazing. It's all improv, you know, and uh, two years of classical dance, that's three right. years of tap. That's right. You know, and that movie too, I that movie held me for a long time. The jump scares were strong. The creepy soundtrack was awesome. But then when he was gone at the end of the balcony plunge, I'm like, oh, okay, now what? Have we suddenly now made him unkillable? He's just a kid. He's just a dude. He lived in an institution. He's not supernatural. So, yeah, that I would put Halloween atop my favorite uh, horror flicks of all time were it not for the fact that, wait, now what? He walked away from wow. that. Okay. Wow. Eric, that is literally um, the best answer to that question that we have ever heard. We might need to change the name of this award to the Doug French Award for character that most deserved to die. And then you we'll know, just ask people to tell us who Doug French is. I mean, this <laughs> this is a revolution right here. Come on. I am gobsmacked and honored. It. Thank he you. He nailed it. Speaking of, um, so Doug, since you did such a great job 
telling us who Michael Myers was. Um, why don't you give us your award for the Michael Myers uh, in this film, Evil Dead 2? Who is the winner of this award? I mean, do we know if uh, Raymond Noby is dead? Oh, I assume he's dead. Yeah, or in he, another he, dimension. Well, his face yeah. appears. Yeah, that's right. I, so I, I assume that he's... Well, then, then I give it to him because he's the dummy who started this whole thing off by finding the Necromicon and thought, I'll just read it out loud. Right. What could go wrong? All right. So Dr. Raymond Noby uh, for Doug. Uh, Bradford, who do you have for the Michael Myers Award? Jake, obviously. Mm. He's, he's a grifter. He intentionally screws the rest of the group when he drops the Necronomicon pages into the fruit cellar. He is my least favorite kind of character in any movie. He's He is Michael from the Blair Witch Project when he destroys their map. He deserves that Kandarian dagger in his chest and every awful thing that comes after. Jake gets my Michael Myers award for character that most deserved to die. Is he like your uh, is he like your Joey yes. Pants from the Matrix? The betrayer? He is the Judas. The, the, the further adventures of Judas the Carrot. He's the Judas Pants. Yes. You know, Bradford, I'm right there with you. Uh, I am also giving my Michael Myers Award to Jake, the local yokel with the surprisingly hot girlfriend. Um, The second he throws those pages down into the cellar after all he's seen, the way he pistol whips Ash, it's like, does anything you have seen make an impression on you, sir? Do you not think this guy maybe has a better handle on the situation than you do? Jake, you win my Michael Myers Award. Which brings us to, yes, it's that time of the night, the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment, mm. named for the director of, up. Oh, say it, Bradford, say whore, it. Whore, whore, take the money, whore. Also, Tommy, Altered States, Lishtomania, the Boyfriend, the Devil's Lair oh, the devil's. of the, the White, white worm. worm, Gothic, God, the Rainbow, the Music Lovers. What didn't he direct? All right, so this is the most Baroque screen moment. Again, Bradford Lorick, start us off. I mean, ugh. Evil Dead 2 is is... To make a comparison outside of the medium of film, this is like a musical composition from the actual Baroque period. I mean, it's like it's like <laughs> listening to Purcell or 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 Handel. It's like a Handel opera where after fourteen hours of decoration, the crank just falls off. But that said, I think it's maybe headless, naked, chainsaw wielding Linda who afters herself with that chainsaw until green-black blood explodes out of her, or um, fountains of blood coming from behind the walls or up from the root cellar. Um, but I think it's actually probably that ultimate apotheosis of Sweet Henrietta, when she's like shrieking like a monkey and bobbing and weaving like a Ray Harryhausen dinosaur. Um only to be dispatched in true Wild West fashion by Ash. Um, and of course, I mean, that is followed almost instantly by an entire forest of trees attacking the cabin before a giant monster so terrifying that Ash's hair immediately turns gray, um, bursts through the, the door, and then <laughs> spews blue ichor from its eyeballs. So I guess just like... Do with all of that what you will. That is like the 
I mean, it's it's the cherry on the cake of Baroque. Yeah, there are about six scenes in there, but uh, I, I that's take like your that's point. that's um, like one moment. It's like a, a minute long sequence. It's Henrietta through the you know monster coming in, and it's like the entire end sequence of the film, basically. Not exactly, but sort of. Yeah. Listen, I I, I will go second because um, you mentioned something that that did win my Ken Russell Award. And and yes, where do you start with this film? Every goddamn scene is Baroque. Yes. But if I had to choose one, I'd probably go with a scene in which Linda's decapitated head falls into Ash's lap from God knows where and then bites his hand and he proceeds to smash the head into every conceivable surface. It will not come off. And so he heads into the tool shed, sticks the head in a vice grip. Linda briefly comes back to life. And Ash just goes to town on the head with his chainsaw, which we don't see, I assume for budgetary or ratings reasons. But um, everything does go red uh, in that moment, not unlike Daughters of Darkness. Doug French, what do you have for the Ken Russell Award? That was a funny scene, how he's smashing his head against anything. And she she won't, let go. won't let go. I think, I mean, I'm going to go with Bradford a bit just because I think in true cinematic construction, you need to have the most Baroque scene be the mm. crescendo when he is transported into this whole new realm and Audrey II comes out and starts <laughs> trying to fight him. I mean, that's, I do, with a special shout out to the instant Elsa Lanchester stripe, mm. I get that. But I do think the very end when this, you know, weird, tennis ball with fangs comes after him and then he's sucked into the hole and lands among the knights yes, they knee they do uh, it's a very um that's a baroque scene to have such a tonal shift to land in the medieval times when you say that he lands in medieval times you don't mean that he lands at the restaurant medieval times correct he lands at ren fair and orders himself right. a big turkey leg and uh and a barbecue and a cup <laughs> whatever they say one yeah. of those things you know they, they it's like got baked beans and shredded pulled right. pork or whatever, and, and you quaff it. You know, Bradford, I, this may be the time to ask, uh, just no spoilers here, of course, but The Army of Darkness, the film that um, is after this one, and it's, I guess, the third in the, in the trilogy, does that pick up from where this film leaves off? And are those knights, in fact, do they figure into that third film? Nearly immediately after okay. the conclusion of this film, that film okay. comes up. Yes. All and right. So, the, so be- the idea for that film was actually supposed to be Evil Dead 2. Oh. Yeah. Um, but I think there were some budgetary issues, and also I think the producers were demanding that the, the project hew closer to the, the OG Evil Dead. Right. So basically, the Army of Darkness, I can only imagine is Ash and the Knights going to war with the evil beings? Is that, would that be correct? That is nearly exactly the plot line. I figured as much. Okay. Is it worth seeing? Yeah. So we have arrived, gentlemen, at our final award of the night. That is the uh, Brad Dourif Award for character that could or should have been played by Brad Dourif. Now, we have not had a trifecta yet tonight so I'm, I'm i'm really hoping that that we all chose the same uh character here but a, a moment about brad Dourif, uh, our patron saint 
perhaps best known to listeners of this podcast as James Veneman. Veneman, the Gemini killer in The Exorcist 3, which we Uh, covered extensively and rapturously last season. We did, as well as the voice of Chucky in the original Child's Play films. Billy Bibbit, uh, for which he was nominated for an Oscar from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Wise Blood, and a couple uh, notable films by David Lynch. David Lynch. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, Bradford, um, why don't you start us off? Who uh, wins your Brad Dorif Award? Oh, this is easy. It's Jake. Jake is a Dorif role, the Dorif mm-hmm. role of the film. I sense that I'm disappointing you somehow. No, um, uh, not at all. Because I too uh, am going with Jake. Uh, no way! For the Brad Dourif Award. As much as I'd like to see what he could do with the least interesting character in the film, Ed Gently. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm giving it to I'm giving it to Jake. Uh, if only because he is indeed the most Dourify of characters. He's a total snake. He's a complete sleaze, and I just think Dourif would, you know, make a meal out of him. All right, Doug yeah. French. So, do you intentionally omit roles like Worm Tongue and um, and the Doctor on Deadwood for derivative? No, derif not at all. It's just it's just we just make a shorter list. That's all. Well, no. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think of Brad Dourif for his role in Deadwood, right. which was brilliant, and his role in uh, obviously he was Worm Tongue, and definitely brought that level of craven sliminess uh, in everything he did. Yeah. He was more. He was actually one of the moral centers of Deadwood, which must have yeah, been a nice seriously. change for him. I would say I would not, given my respect for Duriff's career and his acting chops, I think Jake is beneath huh. him as a role. Wow! Because Jake is just this, you know, throwaway creep who gets, you know, liquidated, liquefied, and rightly <laughs> so. And and so, um, frankly, given the contempt I have for Nobi and the way he started this whole thing off. I would want Duriff to be brought on as Nobi and the script altered to learn more about what he did when he discovered the Necromicon, why he was so interested in bringing it to life, why he was so obsessed with finding mm. it in the first place, what he, how he might have reacted when Henrietta was taken from him and turned into a giant sack of shit. <laughs> uh, I think it would be an interesting role for him, just the spectrum of pursuing this with such great intensity and then realizing the harm he had done unintentionally. That leads me to ask Mr. Lorik, do we get any more of uh, Nobi's backstory in um, Evil Dead 1? No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And with that, we've arrived at our final segment of the night, the final exam. And this, of course, is the part of the program where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about this film. Doug, would you like to go first? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think I'll couch this first in our old Filmington system. I think if I were to grade this on our old system, I would give it about Hmm. five and a quarter. It is above half, and I think I'd be happy to pay a matinee price for this, back when matinees (laughs) were a thing. And the letter grade, therefore, would be, I guess, a B minus. You know, it's right there, the B minus C plus edge. But I think the final nod goes to just saluting the ragtag nature of these local boys, cavorting in the woods, creating weird stuff, and committing, following their hearts, and with a slightly bigger budget, so they could have some animation, they could throw some extra blood in there. 
I just love thinking about what went into making this thing. And that's what puts them over the top and the positive side of the ledger. I like the way that you've considered all of those things. Um, Mr. Winnick, how about your final letter grade for the semester? Well, as you have probably surmised, uh, I did really enjoy this film. Um, And I've been very, very stingy, as you know, this semester, Professor, with my grades. I've never given out an A+. I've never given out an A. However, I have given out an A minus, and this film is no exception. I am giving this film my highest grade to date, along with a couple others. I think I've, I can't remember exactly what, but I have given out a couple of these, but a rare, rare A minus to Evil Dead 2. And thank you for suggesting this one. Eric, that makes me so happy. Wow. Well, it's all because of you, sir. So what do you have? What are you giving this film? And wait, let me guess. An A plus. No, I give The Evil Dead 2 an A. A solid okay. A. It is, uh, it's foundational. It is inspirational to so many uh, pretenders that have come after it. But it's no April Fool's Day. Nothing is April Fool's Day. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you enjoyed tonight's episode, and if you do, if you did, tell your friends, share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes called the internet, have a listening party, bring some peanut butter and butter on raisin bread sandwiches, and hey, maybe even subscribe. (laughs) It just sounds so disgusting. Or better yet, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so it will be easier for others to track down. And be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareupod.com. Thanks again to our guest, my old friend, Doug French. Doug, if people want to find you and your work online, where can they do so? So, well, the current project is called When the Flames Go Up. It's a great podcast with my ex-wife. We talk a lot about what it's like to be a parent now in our 50s and what we were preparing for throughout our entire lives as hands-on parents and then wondering why this is definitely not what we expected. Uh, you can find us at whentheflamesgoup.substack.com and follow us on Instagram at when.the.flames. And I'm assuming that podcast is available wherever podcasts are sold. It is indeed. It's distributed everywhere. Apple, Stitcher, Google, all the favorites. And uh, yeah, if you, if you listen to it and you like what you, if you like our, our banter, which I think benefits from the 20 some years we've known each other, give us a review. We'd appreciate it. Meanwhile, you can find me at bradfordlorick.com. And you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker E.A. Winnick. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. Our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cupworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works and a direct descendant of Filmington. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you soon in the secluded mountain cabin that we like to call... Scare, Scare You. you. <laughs> <laughs>